and do more of them. I think they're, uh, in fact, I've gone through, I think, a devotional that was 31 reasons Jesus came, and I've gone through another uh, that is 50 reasons Jesus came. And uh, so I don't think, I think there was some overlap between them. Not 81 reasons. They were by different authors. Uh, but still, I, hopefully this will be a blessing to you uh, as we look at Luke 19 and verse 10, the story of Zacchaeus. If you look in verse 1, and Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press, because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be guest for the man. Awful. Horrifying. With a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. There's the reason tonight Jesus came for the world. Jesus came for the world. And I want to talk about that. Now, there are some things in the passage that obviously, you know, when Jesus said, Salvation has come to this house for so much as this man is the son of Abraham. He clearly is digging at the uh, Pharisees who believed that all sons of Abraham were automatic. It was automatic, but they hated publicans and thank God publicly that they were not like the publicans and so on. But I'm not going to get into all of that. I want to talk about Jesus came for the world. Jesus said the son of man has come. To seek and to save that which was lost. Good news. Let's pray. Lord, as we open the word together, I pray that you would open it to us. That we would see what your word teaches and that we would be delighted by it. That it would stir us and, and give us uh, confidence and faith in Christ. That we would look to him and rest in him. And, and uh, I pray, Lord, that all of us, that our confidence would be in him. But also that it would delight us to think what Christ has done for us in coming to this earth. I pray that uh, you would bless us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, <clears throat> some Calvinists, not all, but some Calvinists will argue that Jesus did not come for the world, did not love the world, and certainly did not die for the world. <coughs> R.C. Sproul, for example, points out that in his intercessory prayer in John chapter 17, Jesus said, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. And Sproul says, did Christ die for those for whom he would not pray? I, I'm interested in that because for one thing, the intercessory prayer is a unique prayer. Um, that is, Christ praying, he's, it's very clear, he's very clear who he's praying for in that prayer. Yeah. But that doesn't mean for all time that he never prayed for the world. And it certainly is not grounds for objecting to saying that Jesus loved the world. Sproul argues that Christ's mission was to save the elect, which I don't deny. This is the Father's will, which has sent me that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day, John 6, 39. This is uh, certainly part of what Jesus is accomplishing and will accomplish. Jesus, Sproul said, Jesus is the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. So again, that the arguing for an exclusive coming of Christ, he was to be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21. So 
Sproul argues that the world for whom Christ died cannot mean the entire human family. It must refer to the universality of the elect, people from every tribe and nation, or to the inclusion of Gentiles in addition to the world of the Jews. Um, <clears throat> I'll come back to that in a second. Sproul, let me just add this. He argues that one of the cardinal points of the New Testament concerned the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's plan of salvation. Salvation was of the Jews, but not restricted to the Jews. Wherever it is said that Christ died for all, some limitation must be added, or the conclusion would have to be universalism or a mere potential atonement. All right, so I'm not going to break all that down. I gave you, I want to give you kind of a fair um, uh, presentation of what Sproul is saying, but the bottom line is that his argument was that um, Jesus didn't come for the world, he didn't love the world, he didn't die for the world uh, at all. And uh, I'm, gonna, I'm going to talk about that all in a, in a moment here, uh, but I just say that <clears throat> to, to argue this way, is really to impose a certain doctrinal commitment on what you're seeing in Scripture and to bend all of Scripture through that doctrinal commitment. Now, I am all for presuppositions. You know I preach presuppositionally. I believe presuppositionally. Uh, in our students' apologetics class, we are teaching them thoroughly in presuppositional apologetics. Uh, it is undeniable all of us have doctrinal commitments, but we all also need to be careful that those doctrinal pre-commitments don't trump what we see in the Word of God. That we don't come up to a passage of Scripture and say, well, it can't mean this because of, and reference some viewpoint that we have adopted or taken on ourselves. I hold Sproul in high regard. I've read several of his books. An excellent writer, an ex excellent preacher. But like many Calvinists, Sproul was unwilling to deal with an inconvenient truth of Scripture that clearly contradicts his theological pre-commitments. Jesus sent his disciples with this commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And that is consistent with God's love for the world as declared in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, when John uses the term world, he uses it very consistently in his gospel and in all of his epistles. He uses that word, world, the same way over and over and over again. So when Jesus in his intercessory prayer said, I pray not for the world, there was a consistent meaning of the term world that would explain why Jesus in that prayer, which was a prayer for the elect, in that prayer, why he would not pray for the world. Because the, tr the true world, the way Jesus uses it, the way John records it, he defines for us in his epistle. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, and then he defines it. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. So, Jesus is defining the world in terms of lust. He is defining the term world in terms of rebellion against himself. The world is and has been in rebellion against God. And Jesus said to Nicodemus that God loved the world. Now, that's interesting because in 1 John, we are told, love not the world. But again, this is not, we're not going to impose a viewpoint on these verses. 
but rather understand in what sense God loved the world and in what sense we are not to love the world. The world is defined as a lustful people in rebellion against God. We are not to love the world in the sense that we are not to participate with the world in their lust and in their rebellion against God. God, though, loved the world in the sense that he calls the world to repent. He calls the world to not be the world, to stop being the world. He calls them to that. And that's what Jesus meant when he said that he came because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what God has pledged, promised, the overture of love. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God loved sinners, rebels against him. He loved them by telling them to stop rebelling, to lay down arms, and providing a sacrifice Jesus Christ, who would be propitiation, the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is what the Bible teaches here. <coughs> None of us would have become disciples of Jesus Christ were it not for God's love for the world. The way God loves the world is by sending his son to bring salvation to the world. The way Jesus brings salvation to the world is by giving his life for the world, by being the propitiation, as 1 John 2 and verse 2 says it, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And the way God is designed for the world to be saved is by sending out disciples to the world to preach the gospel, calling the world to repent, telling the world to stop being the world. That's our message. God the Father sent Jesus into a world that desperately needed a Savior. He entered into our world in order to save us from the world. That was the point. In this message, then, I want to show you what Jesus has done to bring an end of our problems in this world. I want you to know because I want you to believe in him. I'm not aiming to get you to believe in yourself, believing in him. See, that's what that's a mistake that a lot of people do. They, they're not looking to Jesus, they're looking to themselves looking to Jesus. They're constantly examining the way that they're looking to Jesus, constantly examining their own faith to see if it measures up, don't do that. Don't do that. Look to Jesus. That's what I want to urge you to do. Um, <clears throat> believe in him. Believe in his person, in his power, in his grace, in his redemption. Believe in what he has done for you. So here are five things. Number one, Jesus came to drive out evil from the world, all right? So he came, now get this, he didn't just come in order to snatch the elect out of the world, he came to repair the ruins caused by the fall in our world. And the first thing is that Jesus came to drive out evil from our world. Not to snatch us out, but to drive evil out. <clears throat> Galatians 1 and verse 4 says, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Now the Bible calls Satan the God of this world. He is the great power of evil in the world. Satan's power lies especially in his power to deceive. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4 says, In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Satan deceives 
by convincing us, persuading us to live our lives by the values of this world, <coughs> to live our lives by the principles of this present evil world instead of living by the things that matter to God. So this is where people are deceived. Their priorities trump God's. God, really, most people in the world look at God as either approving or disapproving of me. Most people think God is approving of them. God is just, you know, watching everything that happens and picking out, you know, what he likes in the world. Most people are not, in other words, concerned at all about whether or not their life, their way of life is pleasing to God. Not at all. And that is a mark of deception on the part of Satan. To get people to live by their own values, by the values of this world, by what the world holds as being valuable, and not caring what God thinks. Ephesians 2 and verse 2 says, Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The genius of Satan is that he convinces you to sin and tells you that that is freedom. That freedom is in doing what you want to do. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committed sin is the servant of sin. John 8, 34. Now, Satan has no power to condemn us. He relies on our sins to do that. He is not the judge. He does not sit in judgment of us. But he does know what the judge looks for. And so he relies on sin. He tempts us with it. He entices us. He tells us lies about sin. He knows that the only thing that will damn a person is unforgiven sin. <clears throat> Drugs and alcohol witchcraft, devil worship, even those who sell their soul to the devil, quote-unquote, as if that were possible. <laughs> That's one of the most ludicrous ideas out there. Like, you can sell your soul to the devil? Is there like a cash register somewhere? Is there a, a coin? Have you discovered the coin? Wherewith someone does this? There's no transaction that can be made with the devil, but Backing up what I was going to say, all of these things that we might consider to be the most wicked things people could do, devil worship, witchcraft, uh, drugs, alcohol, selling your soul to the devil, none of these things have crossed any lines that God cannot forgive. None of them. None of them. There's no sin that a person could commit that is too great a sin for God to forgive. By the way, you can also say that there's no sin that a person might commit that is too small a sin to take a person to hell or to condemn them to hell. And Satan knows that. In fact, you know, Satan is crafty and he is wise. Wise as far as worldly wise. He, he has honed his craft. He knows his... And, and he knows that the best way to trap a person um, in their sin is to get them to commit little sins. The big ones causes too much heartburn. Unless he's really gotten you to be too depraved. It's the little sins. You can get your life to be filled with little sins that you cling to and tell God to bug off and you have no business telling me what to do. Those are the ones that will condemn you. Those little sins. Satan knows God's power to forgive. He also understands the danger of unforgiven sin. And so he tries to get us to be defensive of our sin, to protect it, to shield it, to prevent anyone from uh, encroaching on it. When our conscience accuses us, we make excuses, sometimes become defiant. Satan convinces us that sin is better than holiness. 
that it's better to love ourselves than it is to please or honor God. When Jesus came to free us from the chains of our sins, he does this two ways. First, Jesus tells us the truth about our sin, about ourselves. Jesus said in John 8, 32, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus opens blind eyes. That's what he did while he lived here on this earth. And that is what he does now. In Luke 4 and verse 18, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Secondly, Jesus cast out the God of this world by his death on the cross. That's the second thing that Jesus does for us. In John 12, verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death he should die. So Jesus is doing two things for us so that we will see uh, the evil of our sin and depart from it. One is he tells you the truth, and the other is he dies on the cross. He died on the cross. <clears throat> to cast out Satan, God entered the suffering and evil of this world in the person of Jesus Christ. In his life, and especially in his death, Jesus experienced firsthand the evil of this world. He experienced deadly hatred, false accusation, ridicule, slander, injustice, brutality, and the worst kind of cruelty. And Jesus took all of that evil on himself in his own person and turned it into the best kind of good as he absorbed all the evil that the world could muster against himself, he turned that evil into something extraordinarily good. He brought salvation to the world through the evil and injustice that was carried out against himself. As one pastor said, the lash on his back, the thorns on his head, the spit on his cheek, the bruises on his face, the nails in his hands, the spear in his side, the scorn of rulers, the betrayal of his friend, the desertion by his disciples, these were all the results of sin and all designed by God to destroy the power of sin. So the, the world sinned against Jesus, and Jesus took that sin and the offense of it upon himself and used that as the means of bringing salvation to the world. There could be no greater sin than to hate the Son of God. There could be no greater injustice than the injustice against the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. There could be no greater crime than this crime committed against the best man who ever lived. And yet, that is the story of Jesus. This is the most amazing part of the story of Jesus. He took all the evil that the world perpetrated against him, and he triumphed over it. And we know this because Jesus rose from the dead. The second thing Jesus came to do for the world is to bring an end to human suffering. <clears throat> Matthew 8, verse 16 says, When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. In Isaiah 53, in verse 4, the Bible says, prophesying of Jesus, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. The Bible makes a definite connection between human sin and human suffering. Not that every time we get sick, it's punishment for some sin. Don't worry about that. I know a lot of you have been sick a lot lately. You've not been under chastisement. All right. But I'm saying that the presence of sickness in our world is a direct result of the presence of sin in our world. That if sin were removed from our world, there would not be sickness. And there would not be sorrow. And there would not be suffering either. Disease and death are definitely not part of God's original design for the world. Sickness and suffering enter the world when sin entered the world. They piggyback with sin. <clears throat> part of Christ's purpose for entering our world was to bring an end to suffering and death. Throughout his life, he healed the sick, raised the dead, and he did that not just to impress people, and certainly not so that people would be saved. That's one of the things that we mistakenly believe about the miracles of Christ, was that Jesus committed miracles so that people would believe on him. If that were the purpose, then that failed. Terribly. Because in the end, all men were suffering. And after his resurrection, there were only 120 in the upper room. So that would be a wrong plan, wrong move. That's not why Jesus, the miracles that Jesus committed were signs for us. They teach us, they instruct us. And one of the most important things that we learn from the miracles of Christ is that he has no tolerance and he will not come to terms with sickness, with death, with disease, with suffering. He has no tolerance for it. The death of Jesus on the cross was the beginning of the end of sickness and death. It was certainly not the end, but it was the beginning of the end. And God promised that it would be so. Isaiah 35 and verse 10 gives this prophetic vision. And the ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 26, the Apostle Paul tells us, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. So there's a clear stated purpose in the life and death of Jesus Christ, that he was going to bring an end to these things. Revelation 21 and verse 4 tells us that God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. This is God's promise to us. This is the good things yet to come. The third thing that Jesus came to do in our world is to heal our hurt. To heal our hurt. In Luke 4, verse 17, the Bible says that there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, this is in the synagogue at Nazareth. There was delivered to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel. To the poor he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Notice that one of the things in that prophetic vision was, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Jesus came to heal our hurt. Now Luke tells the story of the time Jesus visited the, the synagogue in Nazareth, as I pointed out, his hometown synagogue. The reading that day was from Isaiah 61. 
And Jesus was invited to read and comment. So he read that passage that I just read to you. He closed the book, gave it to the minister, and sat down. Now this was custom in that day. They sat and they talked. So Jesus did this, and everyone was listening in that synagogue. And then when Jesus spoke, he said this. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. I have good news for those who are hurting. Jesus did not shy away from human pain and suffering. You know, battlefield medics are an amazing group of people. But they can't hold a candle to the Lord Jesus Christ. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. Psalm 147, verse 3. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise <coughs> with healing in his wings. Malachi 4, and verse 2. Jesus came to a world that was hurting, and he hurt with us. He suffered with us, and suffered by our hands, and he suffered for us. In his life, Jesus never encountered human pain and suffering and left it that way. One of the greatest pains people experience in this world is the pain of broken relationships. <coughs> Jesus was not immune to this kind of pain. Remember that he was betrayed by a kiss. Every relationship problem ultimately traces back to a sin problem. Someone being selfish, someone is envious, someone covets, someone is malicious. The Bible says in 1 John 1 and verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. The message is very clear. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, God will heal our broken relationships. Not with Christmas music or softly falling snow. Not with the so-called Christmas spirit. But when we can admit that we have sinned, that our sin has caused this problem, and when we can seek forgiveness for it, God gives forgiveness through the blood of his Son, and the Bible says that we will have fellowship one with another. Sin has been such a destructive force in our homes and in our marriages. But here again we find good news. Jesus came to repair broken marriages. Sin makes us behave badly, even in marriage. Maybe I should say sometimes especially in marriage. When Jesus died, part of what he wanted was for husbands to take note of the sacrifice he was making and to be instructed how to behave in their home. The Bible teaches us that Jesus gave himself on the cross to teach men how to be good husbands to their wives. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Jesus taught husbands to give themselves for their wives, to sacrifice comforts and desires, to suffer for the good of their wife without threatening her or abusing her or being bitter against her. The best news of all is that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse the sins of both husband and wife so that two sinners can live in harmony with each other. <coughs> the other major source of conflict in our world today is caused by racism and racial animosity. Jesus also came to end the hostility between the races. In Christ, we are told that there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, 
but Christ is all and in all. In Galatians 3, we're told, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ erases racial tensions and racial barriers and racial hostilities and makes those who believe all one in Jesus Christ. So we have three things so far that Jesus came to do for the world. To heal our hurt, to bring an end to disease and suffering, to bring forgiveness for our sins, to eradicate effects evil from the world and then a fourth thing is that Jesus came to restore our lost humanity repairing the ruins of the image of God defaced by human sin 2 Peter 1 and verse 4 says whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world Lust. 2 Corinthians 3.18 But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So this is what we need to understand. Sin uglifies us. Now, I'm just going to admit to you, I don't know if there's an actual word in the English language called uglify. All right? But it really works for this, though. Sin makes us ugly. So, so much so that sometimes it can be very hard to perceive the image of God in a person. Sin does that. Sin defaces the image of God that is in every one of us. And the Bible tells us that by his death on the cross, Jesus invites us to die with him so that we might live again. This is what he's called us to do. When we live again, this, this life from the grave is called new life in Christ. It is new life in Christ so that we are called in dying with Christ and rising again with him not to live in the former the former life that was lived in corruption our fallen condition but we are instead called to walk in newness of life therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the father even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, a part of restoring the image of Christ that we defaced with our sin, a part of restoring that includes restoring our lost joy. Sin strips away joy and happiness. And the more we indulge, and the more we are bound in bondage to sin, the more we lose our joy. It's, it's just the opposite. You know, Satan is a great deceiver, and Satan tells you that your life will not be happy or fulfilled until you do this thing right here, and then you do it, and you find that immediately the joy of it, the delight in it, is all taken away. You hate the sin, and... If Satan can really bring you into bondage, he'll make you hate that sin and not be able to live without it. I think that some, some sins or some things that people do are probably the most evident uh, way, you know, like the easiest illustration. And the alcoholics that I've dealt with in the past have told me. And in fact, the, the one, the most severe alcoholic I ever dealt with said this to me. He said, I hate beer. I hate the taste of it. He said, I'm afraid of it. 
But he said, I'm afraid not to be afraid. If you knew the things he experienced when he tried not to drink it, you would understand. He hated it. He said, but I spend every day thinking about it. He said, there's not a moment I'm not thinking about when to get that alcohol in there. This is what Satan wants to do because he does not want you happy. Contrary to get some. He does not want you happy. <clears throat> the Bible says, Thou wilt show me the path of life, and thy presence is fullness of joy at thy right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. Oh, yeah, Satan wants you to enjoy sin just enough to want to do it again, but ultimately, he wants you miserable, and sin will leave you miserable. And the Bible tells us that Jesus, at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 8, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. So the part of you that God intended should be full of joy and happiness and contentment and satisfaction, Satan has attacked that by means of sin, and God restores that to you by making you new creatures in Jesus Christ. How does Jesus overcome the misery that is in this world in such a way that you and I can experience the very joy of Jesus Christ? Well, <clears throat> first of all, when the Bible describes Jesus on his way to the cross, the Bible describes it in terms of joy, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. By triumphing over sin and suffering and death on the cross, Jesus then extends his own joy to mankind. These things have I spoken unto you, Jesus said in John 15, 11, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. So all these things that Jesus suffered, he suffered so that he could include you in his joy, so that you might experience the very joy of the Lord. Two verses later in John 15, 13, Jesus said, greater loveth no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. So Jesus clearly is communicating to us the connection between his death on the cross and his extension of joy to you and to me. Joy, our joy is directly connected to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Without his death, joy would be impossible. Sin would not be overcome. Suffering would be our doom. But since he died, sin is defeated, death is defeated, and joy is possible. In fact, not only is joy possible, joy is inescapable for those who believe. It is impossible that you believe in Jesus and do not experience a growing sense of joy and delight in Christ. So that the Bible says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That joy itself is what lifts you up and what supports you, what raises you up, what holds you up, what gives you fulfillment and meaning and strength in this life. Jesus also came to restore our lost holiness. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Colossians 1, 21-22. Jesus died to make us holy. For by grace... Are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves? It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Finally, Jesus came to save sinners. So, so again, we're saying all the reasons why and what Jesus has done for the world, and this is, I think, the most important 
of all. Jesus came to save sinners. Now the Pharisees were Jesus' arch enemies. They tried to catch him in his words. They tried to trip him up. They tried to make him look foolish. And in the end, they were the ones who wanted him dead. But who were the Pharisees? This is not an exaggeration here in Sarah's. They were the most faithful to keep the law of God of anyone in Israel. They were the most committed to being righteous by the law of anyone in Israel. Jesus, in fact, pointed this out about them. In Matthew 23, verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not after their works, for they say and do not. And then in Matthew 23, 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. They were scrupulous about the letter of the law. But Jesus said they had no heart to it, no delight in it, no love for it at all. They were hypocrites about it. Notice what Jesus taught. You should do what the Pharisees do and what they tell you to do. Yet Jesus pronounced woe on them and opposed them at every turn. Why? Because he didn't like people keeping the law of Moses? Of course not. He knew what was in their heart. <clears throat> now compare the Pharisees who were scrupulous about the law of God, whose whole identity was wrapped up in detailed obedience to the law of God. And then, on the other hand, you have the publicans who didn't even pretend to keep the law of God. Weren't concerned about it at all. Just concerned with enriching themselves and hated by the people. <clears throat> on the outside, the Pharisees were very different from publicans and sinners. But on the inside, they were the same. For the Pharisees, religion was for display. They honored God with their lips, but they did not love God in their heart. And this showed up in their attitude towards Jesus and in their attitude towards sinners. You remember when we read Luke 19? You remember what they said? They were horrified, remember? Because Jesus said he was going to go eat with Zacchaeus. They protested, wait, wait. Don't you know? This guy is a sinner. <coughs> they wouldn't listen to Jesus, and they despised other sinners. When it came time to tithe, they were extra careful. But when it came to the needs of sinners, Jesus pointed out that they omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. They did not associate with sinners, not even to teach them God's ways. And this is because they didn't see themselves as sinners. They didn't think they needed a savior, and they didn't want people who send openly to have a Savior. Now Jesus is the only Savior. And he is the Savior for every kind of sin, whether it's adultery or theft or cheating, conceit, arrogance, or religious sin. Whether you've sinned openly or secretly, Jesus came to save you. If you're more publican or Pharisee, Jesus calls you to repentance. Jesus called Zacchaeus the publican to repentance. And 
Jesus called Nicodemus, the Pharisee, to repentance. The message is the same to every kind of sinner. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Once again, the Bible tells us the good news. Jesus came to this world to save sinners. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Mark 2.17, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Verse Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. So Jesus came for the world, that the world through him might be saved. He did not come because we were especially worthy. Good thing, huh? Because we weren't especially worthy. He didn't come because of anything we are, or anything we were, or anything that he foresaw that we would be. He came out of the riches of his own grace. It's not our worth, not our worth, that brought him to this earth. It is his worth that brought him here. In his life, the Pharisees tried to slander him. He was a friend of sinners. Jesus didn't deny it, didn't shrug it off, didn't run from it, but embraced it. He is a friend of sinners. That's good news for every one of us. His purpose is to make sinners happy forever. <clears throat> 2,000 years after Jesus died, the world continues to have the same problems of evil and suffering and pain. Why? Not because the death of Christ was ineffective, but because the world continues to rebel against him and reject him. If we had it to do all over again, our generation would crucify him the same as that one did. But it doesn't have to be this way. If you'll turn from that rebellion, lay down arms against Jesus, stop pushing back and rebelling against him, turn to him with a believing heart, he will forgive you and give you eternal life. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. 